This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio Show. Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. You can listen live on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. And if you're listening to this on election polling day, local election polling day, you can join me live on the radio at 10pm, 10 till 1. Patrick Maguire and I taking a look at the local elections and as the first results come in. Right, coming up on today's episode, I don't know if you've heard, but the coronation, have you heard of the coronation? That's happening this weekend. So I've been to the Tower of London to find out about the Crown Jewels, and I've been to see Penny Morden. The cabinet minister, who's got a big role, she's carrying a sword during the combination. So I've been finding out how she's been training for that. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, it's time for this. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, and Manveen Rana's here. Hello, Manveen. Hello. And this week's Matthew is Matthew Paris. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Uh, nice to have you with us. Have either of you met the King? Yes. You must have done, Matthew. Yes, yeah, at Dumfries House, which is a place in Scotland that he... It's his project, and there was a literary festival, and I was opposite him at the dinner table, and next to him was Judy Dench. She and I were talking about llamas. She then <laughs> did... She, she did an imitation of a llama gathering saliva as it is just about to spit. And uh, Prince Charles was absolutely transfixed by, <laughs> by her performance. I mean, she's, I mean, if this was possible, she's gone up in my estimation as an actress. She's obviously very good at observing things because she really did look like a llama that was about to spit. <laughs> There's a way that their mouths move. Manvin, I feel the bar's been set quite high. How am I supposed to compete with that? <laughs> um... Not, not a hope. Not a hope. Have no, you ever I, met, I, met I, a minor royal? Have you ever met a minor royal? Um, I mean, I, I met the Queen. I met did Prince you? Philip. That's not who, a minor yeah, royal. Not a minor royal. No, I feel like I did well. Um, Prince Philip was probably the funniest because, you know, he he always managed to say something that would make you think, did he really just say that? Um, and I met him when I was a very young journalist. I was a diarist and it was at a, a an exhibition of political cartoons and it was sort of all Hogarth and things like that. And, um, he stood there and we were sort of chatting and he sort of turned around, stared at it and then stared at me. And, it, you know, this is sort of like um, it's showing scenes of uh, people behaving very badly. And he sort of <laughs> turned around and sort of said, 
Typical journalist staring at me, mind like a sewer. (laughs) 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 You don't even know me. (laughs) And yet he was right. I was going to say, well diagnosed, to be honest. (laughs) Well, let's uh, let's look at this more broadly, though. Obviously, the accommodation's happening uh, this weekend, but it comes as uh, Jamaica says it's going to hold a referendum on uh, whether to get rid of the King as head of state. The country's Minister of Constitutional Affairs telling Sky that legislation to bring forward a referendum could uh, be brought forward as soon as this month. We're looking at holding the referendum in 2024. Time has come. Jamaican, in Jamaican hands. We've also seen uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand uh, talking about um, moving towards becoming a republic. You've got 12 Commonwealth countries joining forces to call on the King to acknowledge and apologise for the impacts and ongoing legacy from British genocide and colonisation. Uh, it's quite a minefield for the for the for the new. I suppose the, the the transfer to the new king reopens all of these debates, which had been felt largely settled for a long time. Matthew. Yes, we thought it was going to do that in Australia, and it doesn't doesn't mm. seem to have. Certainly not in Canada. I would be sad about Jamaica. My family lived there for five years. My my father ran a a factory there. Um, it, it's a great country and fantastic, sparky people. But I can see why this generation of, particularly of younger generations, younger Jamaicans don't don't feel that the monarchy has anything for them anymore. There was very good, <coughs> I beg your pardon, Sky report on it, and they talked to some older people playing dominoes, one of whom said, oh, we'll stick to the evil that you know, that would be better. And I, I think the difficulty for Jamaica will not be in deciding... Uh, to cease to have the king as as the monarch, but it will be in deciding how to replace him. Mm. Um, it's a very polarised society politically, and I can't, off the top of my head, think of many figures who would be presidents of, of Jamaica who would not themselves spark quite a bit of controversy. <laughs> I suppose that's the, the, the well, to the large extent, that's why these things continue, isn't yeah. it, um, Manveen? Because coming up with a, a, a better, more viable alternative... Um, presents its own problems. Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. You know, it's very rare that you sort of get a presidential system that makes things any better. Um, but I think Matthew's right. I think this is generational in Jamaica. I mean, I remember uh, a colleague who, you know, would talk about the, the Queen's visit, which was you know, decades ago, and there was such a fondness for her. And I think once she passed on, you know, a lot of the reports sort of say this too, just, there, there isn't the same sort of feeling for the the new king um but also you know um, i think with jamaica in particular it's interesting how the politics seem to be playing into this you know one of the reasons they're quite cynical about the association with with the the, the monarchy and with, with britain is because of things like the windrush scandal um so you know it's not just a moment where you've got people talking about slavery in a completely different way and a real sort of sense of a reckoning with history but you've got a lot of sort of home office disasters here which are playing out really badly in places like Jamaica and then we sort of you know we wonder why they don't want they don't want to be associated with the king and I, I suppose as well Matthew do you think that there will be a, like a sort of a blip now of countries having these sort of conversations and actually provided that Charles 
gets through the next few months without any major whoopsies. They'll, they'll settle down and put, you know, everyone's got cost of living crisis and domestic political issues to address. Well, this is this is the time, just, just as a new king is being crowned, when people are going to be asking whether they want to carry on with it. So, yes, I'm sure there'll be plenty more. Uh, but besides Jamaica, the longer he's there, the more he'll just feel like part of the furniture to everybody and people will think, well, we'll just stick with what we've got. Um, have, you, have you ever been offered a gong? Because people have been tweeting in about how they've had picked up MBEs and that sort of thing. Well, you, you get invited for a, a chat with the Tory leader in the House of Lords, in, in my case, who offers yeah. you a whiskey ah. and says, have you ever thought about doing something in this place? Mm. Um, and you say, no thanks. <laughs> and, <that's right. laughs> and that was the end of that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that, that awaits us, uh, Mavi. Oh, it'll come, Matthew. It'll come. It'll come. <laughs> uh, Mavi, let's turn our attention to another country now, and Turkey. There were elections being held in, uh, what, 10 days? Uh, yes. With predictions of record voter turnouts and quite a tight race between Erdogan, who's always been there for... Uh, for some time, and the main opposition uh, candidate. What was particularly interesting to you about this contest? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating because, you know, Turkey is key to so many things, you know, the, the Ukraine war, um, Europe, you know, the, the, there's, there's a sense that it's on a precipice and whoever wins will change its future for the next few years. You know, if uh, Erdogan wins, chances are he'll, you know, he'll cosy up a bit more to Russia. We don't quite know how that'll play out in terms of NATO or the Ukraine war. Whereas the opposition leader, who really seems to have a chance, you know, he's making it very clear that he wants to be making sure that they're turning closer to Europe. Um, you know, he, he wants to um, join our side of the alliance, really, rather than sort of siding with Russia. So it really does matter to the rest of the world who wins. But also, I just think it's fascinating because, you know, we've for the last decade or so, we've seen across the world the age of, you know, the strongman leader, the sort of the authoritarian nationalist populist leader and Erdogan is a prime example of that and we kind of we've never figured out how you take them on you know I mean, they 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 stop opposition voices they arrest journalists they make it incredibly hard to have any other side of of the debate even heard in their country and nobody quite knows how you get rid of one and this is this is the most amazing part of this election is it's you know this is entirely organic sort of grassroots movement you've got a, a a guy who's standing there sort of saying i don't want us to be extreme in terms of religion i want us to be more open and inclusive and he sort of sits there doing these videos from this sort of um from a really modest kitchen uh, and and people have really taken him to their hearts it's it's amazing um he you know he seems to be winning in the polls at the moment and we think it'll definitely go to a second round. Uh, and I just think it's one of those things that people around the world will be watching to try and work out how, how they can replicate it in other countries. It's such an interesting country, Turkey, not just geographically, but culturally, always, all through the last century, teetering on the edge between East mm. and West. They're, they're great dictator, I suppose, but he was very popular. Kamal Ataturk decided that Turkey was going to be a Western country, abolished Turkish writing and decided they would go with a Roman script and went out into the streets himself with blackboards and chalk, and chalk teaching people what the Western script would be like. And ever since then, Turkey has never quite been able to make up its mind which way it's going to go. I, 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 I really think that Erdogan's time is gone and it's, it would be great if the new guy won. It's interesting because after 20 years, and to some extent, I suppose, as Turkey's teetered of where it wants to choose, mm. so has Europe in terms of its sort of 
attitude to them. You know, you know, hug him close, and then and then obviously Turkey played such a big part in the even our Brexit referendum debate. You know, the 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 thing that Dominic Cummings told everyone to bang on about was that however many hundreds of millions of Turks were going to come to the UK unless we got we got out right now. If if the election is is won by 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 the challenger then d- democracy is working in turkey and it isn't working in hungary and hungary is in the european union mm. and i i think turkey's case will gradually or could gradually get stronger for joining the eu but i suppose that then means it has to properly tip to does, to yes. becoming a european country yes, and joining yes. the eu it's in nato but not yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and maybe maybe that will happen if if there is a change and erdogan does does lose after what 20 odd years in uh, in power uh, thank you, uh, well that's um we'll, we'll keep an eye on that was about 10 days isn't it may the 14th of that's happening right let's turn our attention now to the big issue of the day is your dundee cake from dundee well, you won't know after Therese Coffey, the Environment Secretary, turned down an application to have Dundee cake listed as a protected food. Obviously, alongside Melton Mowbray, pork pie, Stilton cheese, Cornish patties and so on. Well, what does it all mean? What what makes a Dundee cake a Dundee cake? Well, who better to ask than Tony Turnbull, the Times' food and drink editor. Tony, how are you? Very well, thanks. Right. Uh, what makes... Because it, it's, 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 it's in my mind, a Dundee cake is a sort of dense fruit cake. But what makes it a Dundee cake and not a not just... Well, as far as I understand it, the um, it, it always has uh, blanched almonds on the top, so decoratively it looks different. And also, it doesn't have cherries in it, which most fruitcakes do. Yeah. And instead, has some marmalade in there. So marmalade in the mix. Marmalade in the mix. So, so you get sort of an, and preferably a coarse cut ones. So you get sort of bits of um of the rind in there. And um, apparently, I mean, part of the sort of the Dundee claim is that it was um originated by Mary Queen of Scots, of course, which we can see as just being a pure bit of uh, Scottish propaganda. (laughs) (laughs) Whilst the Sassanac kings burnt cakes, Mary Queen of Scots was just saying, hmm, I like this cake, but maybe we could just improve it slightly by removing the cherries and adding the uh, marmalade instead. The only claim to fame of the obscure bit of the Somerset Levels I grew up on was that it was where Alfred burnt the cakes. Was it? Although, obviously, he didn't. That was the the thing that... um, do you think we should protect the Dundee cake, Matthew? No, I don't think so. It's, it is, as the department says, it's generic. It's, it's a word for a kind of cake rather than a description of where it comes from. I mean, Cornish pasties, yes. must they come from Cornwall? My County, Derbyshire, the Bakewell pudding, the Bakewell tart, the Ashbourne gingerbread, Sage Derby... You're just Must... making these up now. No, no, it's <laughs> Ashbourne gingerbread. Oh, you just, haven't heard just, of Ashbourne no, gingerbread? Just name oh, a place. Oh, it's very well known. Yes, the Taunton yeah. coconuts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just take a place name and a food and put it together. Or champagne. Yes. Yeah. Now champagne has to come. Yeah, from yeah, the champagne yeah. It region. does. Yeah. No, yeah. Cornish pasties aren't protected, aren't they? they? The Cornish pasties are protected. I mean, I think the trouble with Dundee cake is the it was popularised, I think, in about the 18th century. So it's been that the horse has well and truly bolted. It's, mm. it's been gone too long. And it happens to other things. I mean, cheddar, for example, isn't protected. And as anyone who's um, eaten, had the misfortune to eat cheddar in Australia knows, it can be a very different thing yeah. around the world. Yeah. Um, but, you, but, but then they sort of, they produce finer sort of um, definitions of it. So West Country farmhouse cheddar is protected. So it, it, it's a case of sort of capturing it before it's become sort of too mass market. Ma'am Vini, are you a fan of a Dundee cake? Uh, I'm not, uh, I fear. Uh, I, I feel bad about it, though. Um, it's, t- it's too heavy. I think fruitcakes are just too too heavy. I mean, I love a bit of tablet, uh, Scottish, which is great, much lighter, is that very sweet. Uh, I don't I'm know if it is. It should be. What's tablet? 
Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's like it's like sort of Kendall mint, mint cake, is isn't it? It, yeah. it like is. That. I mean, it's it's the same sort of texture as Kendall mint, mint cake, but more like a fudge version, oh, almost. Right. Highly recommend it. Um, but Dundee cake, I, I can't say I'm massively fond of. I can see why why they'd be worried about you know as as we were just hearing you know if you can have cheddar in Australia and the ingredients are clearly not the same, um, or you know it's made very differently. I can see why people would worry about. The, t- the title going elsewhere and being it being turned into something awful. Uh, Matthew mentioned the Bakewell tart, and honestly, every time you're in Bakewell and you say you want to buy a Bakewell tart, they just look no, at you. No, it's pudding. I know. <laughs> yes. Well, it's pudding. They, they look at you and they're like, Mr. Kipling doesn't live here. Um, yeah. you know, they absolutely resent the way it's gone on. Uh, so I can totally understand, like, well, you know, that sort of local fear of it being appropriated elsewhere, but. I just I don't know how many bakers there are in Dundee. I mean, if if you could only call it a Dundee cake, if it came out of Dundee, you may not have very many of them. Well, no, the corn. So I've been looking. at The Cornish pasty doesn't have to be made in Cornwall, no. but it does have to be made to a specific recipe. It is protected, so it has to be a D shape with the crimping on the side, not on the top, and have oh. potato, Swede, onion, beef, and salt and pepper. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you get two levels of it. There's there's um protected designation of origin. Ah which yeah. uh, is actually stricter, and that means that you've actually got to use most of the ingredients from that particular From the region, place. From yeah, the yeah, place. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Dundee doesn't grow many almonds, I shouldn't imagine. Or, know. Yeah, no, much. they don't <laughs> prosper. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, what, one of my great disappointments is the chorley cake is not no. great. It's a bit dry. No. What, is and, there a chorley cake? Yeah, what, it's a bit what like an Eccles cake. cake. Oh. It's a sort of flat pastry thing with uh, dried fruit in the middle. I'm, I'm afraid chorley doesn't do very well either because, of course, the chorley method is a sort of bastardised quick way of making bread so that you can mass produce it. Is it? Yeah, the Chorley method. The Chorley method? Yeah. Invented by your great-great-grandfather, maybe, I don't know. What does that involve? Well, it involves adding lots of things which you wouldn't normally find in bread to make it rise quicker. We could definitely look into that. Scotch yeah. has yeah, to come they, from Scotland, they, they could it? be royalty. Yes. Mm. And then you get Scotland. into whiskey. Do you put the e, the e or... I can never remember which, yeah. which whiskey yeah. has an E or not. Irish. You, you must know. Irish. Irish. Irish and American. I bet that's the sort of thing that gets you into trouble all the time if yeah. you're not careful. Uh, lovely. Tony, thank you for that. I feel like um, we've cleared all that up now. <laughs> Nobody likes Dundee cake is the main takeaway for all of that, so we don't really mind whether or not it's protected. Uh, Matthew, I just want to ask you, uh, last thing, you've been hiking. Where have you been hiking? Wonderful national park in Andalusia called the Cathorra National Park. Absolutely huge, high, white marble mountains, beautiful river valleys, almost nobody there, just a few dirt roads through the, the middle of it. I thoroughly recommend it. But there's a row in the Alps because they've taken away t- uh, six-foot iron stakes, which were making it too easy to climb... Uh, I can't remember where... where Mont, Mont Blanc. Blanc. Mont, Mont Blanc, yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. agree with that? Yeah, well, the, the Times has had a leading article uh, d- defending the un- undefended nature of, of the <laughs> climb to, uh, to Mont Blanc. Once you start putting safety devices, stakes, railings, whatever in, if you're not careful, you begin to develop a, li- a, a, a legal liability um, that it should be safe all the oh, way up. yeah, that's true. And I, I really w- wonder about the wisdom of this. But a, a big crevasse apparently has opened up, and so they did want to put a few stakes mm. in just to warn people there's a crevasse yeah. here now. <laughs> it's it's, it's difficult, isn't before. it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can't have a handrail all the way up there, can you? And black and yellow taped lines warning you there's a thing there. Well, Everest is getting like that, isn't it? Matthew Powis there and Manvi Viner and Tony Turnbull and you can read them all in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk. If you want to read more about the stories we're discussing, just hit the link in the podcast description. Right, coming up, Coronation Tales from the Tower of London. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. If these walls could talk, what stories they would tell. I'm at the Tower of London. Dates all the way back to 1066. Uh, Built as part of the Norman Conquest. The White Tower, just to my right here. Uh, was uh, originally built by William the Conqueror back in 1078 and what history has unfolded here in the centuries that followed. The prison, uh, it was a prison here right the way actually up until 1952. Uh, you have Anne Boleyn, Walter Raleigh, Guy Fawkes, the Nazi deputy leader Rudolf Hess and even, I didn't realise this, the, uh, the last people to be held in the tower were the Cray twins. Uh, they were imprisoned uh, back in 52 for, for failing to report for national service. But we're not here to talk about prisons. We're here to talk about the other thing that the Tower of London is most famous for, housing the crown jewels. Now, the tradition of keeping the crown jewels here in the Tower of London probably dates back about 800 years to the, the time of Henry III and the 1200s. But then, following Charles I's execution in the 17th century... Everything that was in the jewel house was disposed of. Lots of it was melted down, broken up and scattered across the corners of these aisles. But then when the monarchy was restored, the only surviving items were the 12th century spoon and three ceremonial swords. They, they take their place alongside the other uh, crown jewels in this building in front of me now, the jewel house. Just above my head, you can see a new crest, the crest of Charles III, the interconnecting CNR beneath the crown. The clock just above my head, queues of uh, tourists from around the world coming in for a glimpse of the crown jewels before they make their way up the river to Westminster Abbey for their starring role in the coronation ceremony. Now, security is so tight uh, that I'm not even allowed to record audio while inside the the gallery uh, where the crown jewels are on display. So, well, it's probably time for me to go in and take a peek, and I'll see you on the other side. And we come blinking back out into the the daylight. It's got to be dark in there. Basically, there's lots of spotlights uh, to show off the diamonds and the jewels and the gold. 
the conveyor belts, the famous conveyor belt which you have to stand on, which takes you past uh, the crown jewels. Of course, not all of it will be used in the, uh, in the coronation itself. So what will be used and what won't? Well, one man who knows is Charles Farris. He's the tower's resident expert on the crown jewels and the history of coronations. He just happens to be waiting for me on the very nicely manicured grass right outside uh, the row of cottages which are home to the beef eaters. So let's go over and catch up with Charles now. Charles, basically what I'm here for is when we're all watching the coronation, we all want clever things to say. When the crowns come out and the spoon and the sword and the orbs. So take us through what we will be seeing, which normally lives in the jewel house behind you. So we understand the crown. You put the crown on the king's head, that's, that is the coronation. Tell us about the role of the spoon. The spoon, well, the spoon is used in the anointing. It's an amazing object. In fact, this is the only surviving item of the medieval coronation regalia and also the only surviving piece of 12th century royal goldsmith's work to survive. And the oil is poured from what we call the eagle ampulla. That is a vessel made of gold in the shape of an eagle, replacing an earlier one that was destroyed in 1649. And that oil is poured out from that vessel into the coronation spoon and then the archbishop dips his fingers into the oil and anoints the monarch and if if i wanted to buy that spoon how much would it cost well we get asked very frequently as you can imagine <laughs> about the value of the crown jewels and the only answer that we can give is that they are simply priceless because they are of completely immeasurable uh, symbolic historic and cultural value and therefore they really are a priceless collection it's an occupational hazard of recording in, uh, in the grounds of the Tower of London. The sound you can hear in the background is marching soldiers to show that, you know, we are, we are where we say we are. Um, combinations have changed over the years. Bits get added, bits get removed. What would you say was the most flash coronation uh, that we've seen? Well, very famously is the coronation of King George IV in 1821. And that has sort of gone down in history as perhaps being the most lavish, exuberant of coronations. And it was also the last coronation where several uh, historic traditions took place. Westminster Abbey has been the home of coronations since the coronation of uh, William the Conqueror in 1066, which actually took place on Christmas Day. It might not have been the first, in fact, because maybe Harold earlier that year might have had his coronation there, but the records don't quite tell us that much. That's a good fact, Christmas Day, 1066. Yes. So go on then, tell me about the very, very flash coronation. Okay, so King George IV's coronation in 1821 has sort of gone down in history as one of being the, one of the most um, uh, exuberant, as you said, amazing spectacles in history. And uh, also, uh, one of the most expensive. It was an incredibly lavish event. One of the things that made it amazing was the costume that everyone wore. They wore amazing ceremonial robes and King George IV actually took a keen interest in designing these himself. Recently there had been, uh, in, in, in the early 1800s, the coronation of Napoleon, which had taken place in Paris, and, 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 and George IV was very conscious of competing with that. But what I think your listeners will be really excited about is the coronation banquet. This is the last time the great coronation banquet took place in Westminster Great Hall in the Palace of Westminster. Over 3,000 people attended, all wearing these amazing Tudor-esque uh, robes made of the finest materials. There were also thousands more noble spectators in the sort of rate seatings above. Literally just watching people eating. Just watching people <laughs> eating. They had an amazing meal. The, the, the menu is absolutely eye-watering. Amazing wine list. Amazing table decorations made from silver and gold. And there's also a lot of pageantry as well. The most famous part of this is when the king's champion who would arrive 
at the banquet. He would arrive in full armour, on horseback, ride into the banquet and just challenge everyone in the room basically to a fight or a duel if they dare challenge the authority of the king. Of course, nobody did that. And then he received a gold cup from the king and then rode out. So you can imagine going to a <laughs> dinner where a knight arrives in full armour uh, and challenges you to a duel. That's pretty memorable. That sounds amazing. And then what happened with the crowds? Well, it all, it, it all got a little bit rowdy at the end. So we, there's wonderful accounts of this and lots of people re- reported it and wrote letters about it because it was such an amazing event. For a start, it was incredibly hot. It was a hot day. There were thousands, literally thousands of candles in candelabra and chandeliers around the room. And also the sort of corridors adjacent had gas lighting as well so they're funneling heat into the room and there's thousands and thousands of diners as well so it starts to get very hot by the end of the meal people are literally fainting but nobody wants to leave because this is the spectacle to end all spectacles is the 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 banquet to end all banquets so people are fainting also the drip pans of the chandeliers above that were meant to collect the wax quickly filled up and so the ceiling literally starts raining with molten wax and if you were unlucky enough to be sat directly underneath one and we were told that people were so jammed in they couldn't then move you suddenly (laughs) in your finery got absolutely covered in wax and then after the king leaves about eight o'clock at night he's had enough goes home at the end of the banquet then things get very complicated because basically a lot of the nobles who had been invited but not to eat were probably a bit ravenous by this point and they come down into the great hall itself like a pitch invasion literally (laughs) and they start helping themselves not just to the food but also they start taking souvenirs as well they take cutlery and glasses (laughs) and table decorations they have to put an armed guard on the chapel where they put all the royal plate to make sure no one tries to take that home Um, and they were anticipating some sort of a fracas at the event famously the king had employed a number of professional boxers sort of like great celebrity boxers of his age to act as sort of doorman for the event probably for sort of star appeal but also you know to act as security so one of the most amazing spectacles in the history of coronations uh, ends as you say in a in a bit of a riot i was going to ask you why it didn't happen again but i think we've answered that that, that question as to why we don't get a big westminster hall dinner uh, for the for the coronation this time well william the fourth who was the the next uh, monarch to have a coronation he was a completely different uh, temperament to george the fourth and he didn't want any of this he wanted it very much paired back uh, his coronation was a much simpler affair it still had a lot of the traditions and the regalia etc but they didn't have a lot of the the grand spectacle which had been seen at george the fourth's coronation probably best to avoid the drunken riot that's i can see that the that would be the case. We should talk about the things which don't get to go to the coronation, and in particular, uh, the, the, the crown worn by the Queen, Queen Mother, the controversial diamond. Tell us about that. Well, there's um, a number of objects which um, don't, uh, which aren't always used in the in the in the in the coronations. Um, the, as you mentioned, the crown of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, that was uh, made for the coronation of uh, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth in 1937, and that is set, as you said, with the Kohenor diamond. The crown that we've been told will be worn by Her Majesty Queen Camilla and used for her coronation is. Queen Mary's crown, which was made in 1911 for the coronation of Queen Mary and King George V. It was then used later, worn by Queen Mary, at her son's coronation in 1937. So this is one of a a number of coronations where that crown has been worn. And it's a very, very beautiful crown and it'd be very exciting to see it. I suppose that's the the shape of coronations over over time, the the different bits get picked and chosen and added and probably less controversial than... Charles and Camilla having brand new crowns made. 
Well, it's <laughs> always been personal choice throughout history. Um, what objects are used. There are traditionally uh, objects which are used um, in the ceremony. For example, St. Edward's crown, which is named after Edward the Confessor. That is used for the actual moment of crowning. Although, hasn't always been the case <laughs> because I mentioned George IV earlier who had that very most lavish of coronations. Unsurprisingly, he wanted to break with tradition and he had just commissioned a new state crown, an amazing, huge crown, which was set only with diamonds. So imagine a very large crown set only with diamonds, something like 12,000 diamonds. And he loved this crown so much that he wanted to be crowned with it. So he was crowned with this crown, but the diamonds were actually hired specially for the occasion because they couldn't afford to buy them at the time. And he begged Parliament to let him keep the diamonds and to pay for them, uh, uh, but they refused. So in the end, he had to give the diamonds back. And what's quite sweet, as stories go, is the fact that uh, before he gave it back, he had a cast made of this crown set with all the diamonds so he could remember it by. So an, uh, 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 an amazing keepsake of what I'm sure was a very memorable day for him. Just funny when you're when you're in there and you're you're working with the crown jewels. Do you ever pop it on your head? <laughs> I don't ever touch the oh. crown jewels. <laughs> I'm uh, I I I, uh, I I help our visitors to explore yeah. them. I research them, and that's an amazing privilege to do so. But uh, no, uh, I, I I I never get to handle anything. Charles, really good to speak to you. Thanks so much. For, thanks very much for for, for for giving this sort of guided tour of history. Well, lovely. Thank you, and I, uh, I hope your listeners enjoy it and enjoy the coronation as well. I've been to the Tower of London and seen the crown jewels, but who is going to be carrying what during the coronation? I've come down to the Privy Council, just across the road from the House of Parliament. And I'm joined by the, the President of the Council, the Lord President of the Council and Leader of the House of Commons, Penny Morton. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Thank you, for, thank you for hosting us. With, we are surrounded by Privy Council memorabilia feels like that's too cheap. Artifacts. Artifacts is probably better. We'll talk about some of that in a moment. First of all, let's talk about your role. What is it that you're going to be doing in the coronation? So, Lord President of the Council is really the, the chairman of the King's Privy Council. Uh, it used to be the executive for the, for the King and it still does a lot of uh, business and it's an important part of our, our constitution and the authority that we, we have in Parliament. And so on the day I am representing the King's authority and I'm going to be doing a number of things but uh, the, one of them will be carrying the Sword of State which is... Uh, the heaviest uh, sword, so I've been doing some press-ups to uh, <laughs> train for that. But that, that represents his authority. And normally that sits in the Tower of London. It's part it of the sort of the set of the crown jewels. It does. Um, and uh, it was one of two swords that were made for Charles II. Only one survives, and that's, that's the sword of state we have today. And how, how do you carry it? So it has to be carried at right angles to the body, hence the need to do so press-ups. So, so, no, so it's pointing so upwards. So you're holding out in front of you. Holding out in front of you yeah. uh, for some time. But, uh, so do you get to practice with the real thing or are you using sort of baked bean tins? How are you, how are you preparing? <laughs> so uh, we, get to, we get to practice with some replicas which yeah. are weighted the, the same as the... How long the, are you holding it for? Some time, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a huge honour to do it. We're doing rehearsals at the moment, yeah. and uh, one of the well, there's two very fascinating things about rehearsing. It, the first is you learn a lot about why things are done, yeah. and uh, you know the commentators on the day will be uh, earning their money explaining because it's a very complicated ceremony. But things are done in a particular way for uh, very good reasons. But the the other thing is we have to time it mm. perfectly because 
parts of the, the, the coronation service are, uh, need to take place within particular pieces of music. And so uh, it's, a, it's a huge choreography going on. And you've obviously been in the Navy, so you, you know a bit about that. How does it, is that coming in handy? Your... It is, especially standing for long periods of time, <laughs> uh, not fainting. <laughs> that's very important. But that's yes. not the only, you've got two, you've got two swords to grapple yeah, so with. The, the other sword, which is going to be carried in by a young petty officer, and uh, she's, she's carrying it in, is the jewelled sword of offering, which is part of the king's regalia. So he's given these things uh, as he's uh, preparing to, uh, to be crowned. And one of those things is the jewelled sword, which I will, I will hand to the king. Wow, so that's a lot of responsibility. It is, with very valuable and sharp objects. <laughs> yes. yeah, being around the king with a great big pointy sword is quite dangerous. It's not like an orb. Well, I, I, I feel, um, <laughs> you know, a terrible weight of responsibility. <laughs> but I, I have to say that, as you'd expect, I mean, I, I've seen the, nothing quite at this scale, mm. but we've all seen how amazing we do ceremony and, uh, and all of that. And uh, this is the first time I've ever seen what goes on behind the scenes to get it so mm. damn perfect on the day and nothing will be left to chance. And so I think, please watch it with confidence and don't be nervous that I shall mess up. And because you're the, the president of the, of the Privy Council, do you get to see, presumably you get to see the King quite a lot during the course of your, your day-to-day job? It's a, it's a huge privilege, yeah. yes. And, and I think particularly during the, the time that uh, I've been in this role, I've had the privilege of supporting the royal family and the royal household through some big moments. Yeah. and. Uh, it's, again, just been a huge privilege to do that. Is he, spo- is he excited? Has he spoken to you about the, about the big day? <laughs> he is. Uh, I, I think what we sometimes forget is that it is a very spiritual mm. service. Uh, so it will have all of the, the weight of the occasion and him wanting to do a good job and ensure that, you know, the country gets what it needs from the, the whole weekend. But also for him, it will be a deeply spiritual experience. And of course, when you became Lord President of the Council, I mean, this is a job which has been done by, well, we can see some of them, some of them photographed on the wall behind us. Yes. Lots of them come and gone in this role, never going anywhere near a coronation or indeed an accession ceremony. In fact, we've got one of the many things laid out on the table behind me. This is a, a list of the ministers who attended the accession of Queen Victoria in 1837. You hadn't been in the job very long last summer and suddenly you found yourself carrying out the proclamation of a new king. It was a most amazing time because I arrived for work as usual on Monday as a junior trade minister. On Tuesday I was promoted to this role. On Wednesday we tried to have a privy council with Her Late Majesty. It's the day before she passed. I mean, such was her devotion to duty. And Thursday she sadly passed away. Friday, people kept asking me if I was okay, and I wasn't really sure why <laughs> they were asking me that. And then, obviously, on the Saturday, I was delivering the accession council. And how did you feel doing that? Finding your, I mean, literally in the world spotlight, and it, you're the one declaring that he's the king. It was the most uh, amazing yeah. moment. And I remember also, because it looking back on it and the response the nation had at the time was just phenomenal. I mean, from the guards of honour with ponies and tractors in Scotland, right down to that incredible queue of people wanting um, to uh, pay their respects in as she lay in state. 
but it wasn't a foregone conclusion that that's how it would turn out and it was it was potentially a moment of real peril mm. for the country especially because of the political dramas that were being played out mm. at the same time and I remember coming out of the accession council having just done it and I wanted to see the proclamation delivered from the balcony and I was tucked behind a pillar in um, St James's Palace Yard with Sir Rob Buckland and we were both watching this and I, my sort of heart was in my mouth. The proclamation was delivered and then the guards did the three cheers to the king and I could hear over the palace wall thousands of people cheering the new king and at that moment I knew it was, it was going to be okay. It was a real, it was really emotional to do it. And what do you say to people who say, look, this is the 21st century, it's 2023, why have we got all these people marching up and down with swords and orbs and all this ceremony? How does that fit into the times that we live in now? Well, I would, I would offer you people lining the streets and the number of street parties in your <laughs> neck of the woods that have been registered with the local council. I think this is really important to the, to the country. I think the monarchy survives and persists because it adapts and it changes and it's always relevant. And I think that th in this coronation, Yes, it is going to be royal and marvellous and mystical and spiritual and, and everything that you would expect it to be, but it will be modern as well. And there's always great chat before uh, an event like this, you know, has it gone too far one way? Has it gone too far the other way? And we always get it absolutely spot on. And I think that uh, it, it's an important moment for the country. I think the country is proud of the monarchy and the royal family and the service they play. They provide stability. We've, we saw that most profoundly last year. And they provide continuity. And I think as far as how we're known by the rest of the world, they're a huge part of our story. I just hope everyone has an amazing weekend. I know that that is what the king would wish. And so let's talk about some of the, uh, the other items that are laid out behind us. Mm. In particular, behind you, there's a, there's a uniform. That's the Privy Council uniform. Yes. Are you going to be wearing that to the combination? Uh, I am not. I don't think it was appropriate for the, the modern yeah. sense, but I am I'm taking my lead from it. So this motif here is, yeah. is on the court dress of the Privy, which so is, is it, what my predecessor So it's a sort of dark, it's a, is it black, black sort so of tailcoat? Tailcoat. But with gold braiding on the cuffs and collar. And the, the, what my predecessor would have worn would be the old court dress, which yeah. the whole of the front of the dress, uh, yeah. the, the tunic is uh, embroidered with, yeah. with that heavy gold. Have you had something made? So I have had something made and uh, it, will be, it will be modern. Uh, it will definitely be made for a woman. Uh, but it <laughs> which will I imagine also, most of these words. It will, no, <laughs> but it will also be lifting the embroidery. Uh, nice. of the Privy Council. Fantastic. I mean, I want to talk about this as well, because this is actually part of your day job, this, isn't it? What's this? This is a, a, it's a bodkin. A bodkin. So this is a sort of, it's a brass knob with a big spike on the end. It look, looks like something you could do an injury with. Yes. So tell me, tell me about that. Yes, you see, um, there's a theme here of sharp objects. Yes, yeah, um, you're in charge of a lot of sharp objects, buddy. So when we, uh, I can't tell you the business that we do in the Privy Council, that be, even though it is available online, yeah. um, I will be sent to the tower. But we don't want um, that. But uh, this is used to mark certain documents. Well, I think we have, actually we've got one here that we are allowed to talk about. So yes, this is a scroll. This is a scroll. And uh, when we're, the king is uh, nominating sheriffs, uh, he will mark... Uh, so he signed it. That's his approved. actual signature on there. Yep. Yes. And then, so declaring sheriffs, 
and then he marks it instead of signing each one. He will, as you can see there. He jabs it with a. He with will jab, the, jab it with that. There's a lot um, on here. How long does that take? <laughs> so you're sort of scrolling. So this is this is obviously every every county. Every county sheriffs. Um, Look at that. Yes. And yet everyone has got a got a, got a. a, a, a I know. I mean, it, all, all of these people playing an yeah. important role in their communities. And, what, and why jab it rather than sign it? Well, perhaps it is uh, because this is more reliable than pens. Yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't scratch that off. <laughs> but, uh, but, no, potentially. Yeah, yeah. But it's part of our day-to-day -day business. It's part of the business of Parliament. Um, and we should explain to people who don't know, the Privy Council isn't just about the government. There are lots of people who are in the Privy Council, you know, leader of the opposition, leader of other parties, long-serving MPs and so on. So there are lots of people who are Privy Councillors. Yeah. Privy Council tends to be attended by serving ministers yeah. because that is, it used to, as I say, yeah. be the executive. So that's what tends to happen. But there are lots of people from, from all sorts of, it's not just politicians, all yeah. sorts of walks of life who are, who are Privy Councillors. And they indeed have roles to play, for example, in the Accession Council, and what, what a moment to have this job, given all the people who've had the job before. Sometimes been a bit disappointed about being given leader of the Commons oh, and president no, of the council, a, and now you're right in the middle of it all. It's a, it's a fabulous role, and to do it at this time, I'm, I'm just really privileged and, and proud to be doing it. And again, just uh, being able to help and support members of the royal yeah. household and everyone involved in these events, uh, it's going to be fantastic. Well, best of luck with it. Keep doing the press-ups. Don't drop the sword. I won't. I won't, Matt. Paddy Morton, uh, President of the Council and uh, Leader of the House of Commons. Thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio. Thank you. Now, if you're out and about and you want to listen to the coronation on the radio, join Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. They are broadcasting live from the Ruth of Methodist Hall in Westminster, right opposite Westminster Abbey. They'll have all the build-up for you on Saturday morning and full coverage of the ceremony. Uh, and they've got Nick Serple, royal expert, joining them as well. Do tune in to Times Radio on Saturday for that. But that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Do get in touch about any issues or complaints. Email me, matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly is goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.